What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. But, you know, when the Israelis pick up guns or the Poles or the Irish or any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad man so there won't be any more like him. That's James Baldwin in a clip from the 2016 documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. This week, with protesters filling city streets across the U.S. after another unarmed black man, George Floyd, was killed by police, we consider what the movies have taught us about racism. Listeners help out. I've got a feeling that's not the last we'll hear from Baldwin. All that ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. On May 25th, in Minneapolis, George Floyd, a black man, was killed when a white police officer kept his knee on Floyd's neck for over eight minutes. As we've all seen, protests broke out in the Twin Cities the next day and then in cities across the country in the days that followed. As we record this, Adam, it's more than a week after they started and the protests do continue. And all of this during a pandemic that has killed over 100,000 Americans, a disproportionate number of whom are people of color. Josh, of course, we're so privileged in so many ways, but also in having this platform that is film spotting. And to be honest with everyone, we weren't sure the best way to use it this week. One thing we knew we could do was share with our listeners the ways they could support the protesters. And we will put a link to some of those resources in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net. Ultimately, we settled on this top five, top five movies that educated us about racism. And I think listener Zach Hesting offers a good perspective on why this may be a fruitful topic. He says, films can teach us so much. The introspection I have gained in life through films is incalculable. I grew up in a small rural town, and films were often my only glimpse into a larger world outside of the news. Empathy, compassion, and understanding can all be gained if you look at movies as an expression and take the time to consider the film's point of view. And Zach did share some of the titles that have had the biggest impact on him. I think you're going to hear all, if not most of them, come up over the course of this show. Zach continues, in all honesty, I don't think I have grasped the scope of institutional racism and the systems that support it until I watched the George Floyd video, the Eric Garner video, the Floyd video. These are wrenching documentaries of another type. They are unvarnished documents of the cause of fear in so many of our communities, like other powerful films, they can't be turned away from, nor should they be. Thank you, Zach. I, I think that's that's well said. And yeah, just back to what we were saying at the top, Adam, about trying to figure out what the show should look like this week. I, I think we've both been trying to do a lot of listening this week, more listening than speaking. And in doing that, I've heard people of color just encourage others to amplify black voices. So um, I think that's kind of one of the motivations behind this list for us. Obviously, I'm going to be doing talking on the show as usual, but, but what I hope to do is turn the focus on these great films and the necessary voices behind them. So speaking to, to Zach's email, you know, to my shame, I've only had two real ways into the African-American experience in my life. I would say one of those is my church tradition. It's absolutely a white church tradition for sure, but it has included partnerships with black churches. That's helped me understand what Christianity looks like for folks with different experiences than mine. So that's one avenue. Another avenue has been, an avenue into the black experience has been art. 
you know, it's been books, it's been music, it's been TV, and of course, it's mostly been movies. So this list is a reflection of that, where things stand now. It's not a comprehensive list. I don't pretend that my education on this is even near complete. So that kind of means this time, if we get emails from listeners saying, how could you forget this? Or why didn't you include this? Rather than kind of bristle, I'm going to be grateful because uh, they'll be providing ways for that education to continue. So so that's kind of where I'm at with this list Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. The best thing I think we can do is listen and learn. I've heard that a lot this past week as well. We don't always, as white people, have to feel compelled to comment or to interject ourselves into someone else's struggle. And that raises the question, then, should we do a show at all right now? At the same time, you understand that to be silent seems to be complicit. And Then if you decide to do a show, you have to consider what the substance of it is. And certainly, I think I speak for both of us when I say that our objective is not to try to tell anyone that these are the five movies that define your experience, but to try to express what we've learned from cinema, how movies have informed our worldview, and informed our alignment with the notion that should be self-evident and indisputable that Black Lives Matter. And... When we announced this topic in our film spotting newsletter that went out, we got a response from a longtime listener, Josh, who shared the topic with his romantic partner, who is a black woman. And her response was, it must be nice to be privileged enough to learn about racism from the movies. Hmm. And she's absolutely right. That is the perspective that this top five is predicated on. Art, as you said, Josh, so well, is how we expose ourselves to ideas and to struggles outside of our day-to-day experiences. And I'm undeniably fortunate to be in the position where I needed movies and I needed other works of art to inform me and to educate me. So undeniably, privilege is implicit in this entire endeavor. And yet we hope that we can engage in a positive and ongoing dialogue with our listeners and anyone else who hears this show. With that set up then, Josh, I am really eager to hear your number five. All right. My number five is Killer of Sheep. I have talked about this 1978 Charles Burnett film before on the show, episode 670. I think that was after Burnett was given an honorary Oscar uh, in 2017. Killer of Sheep is, it's basically a slice of everyday life in Watts and focuses on a slaughterhouse worker named Stan, played by Henry Gale Sanders, just follows his struggle to provide a good life for his wife and children. And I guess what this movie drove home for me was the bone-weary exhaustion of trying to live the American dream uh, when everything is stacked against you. You know, maybe maybe your neighborhood was torn apart to make way for an expressway. Maybe redlining meant you were denied a mortgage to buy a home in a different neighborhood. Maybe at work, discrimination meant you've been repeatedly passed over for promotions. Um, These are all just, you know, sort of large and small scale acts of institutional racism that keep someone like Stan in his place. And so no matter how much effort he puts in, um, the system is against him. Now, in Killer of Sheep, he he keeps going to work, though, he and he even turns away from shadier characters who pop up here and there offering him other options, Uh, options in one scene that his wife, played by Casey Moore, is having none of. Why you always want to hurt somebody? Who, me? That's the way nature is. I mean, an animal has his teeth, and a man has his fists. That's the way I was brought up, goddamn me. Right on. I mean, when a man's got scars on his mug from 
dealing with some of the bitches every day for his natural life. Ain't nobody gonna run over this Just dry long so. I mean, smoke here. We taking our issue. You be a man if you can, Stan. Hey, you, you, you wait, you, you wait just one minute. You talking about be a man, stand up. Don't you know it's more to it than just with your fists? The scars on your mug, you talking about an animal or what? Now, you think you're still in the bush some damn where? You here, you use your brain, that's what you use. Both of you nothing ass got a lot of nerve coming over here doing some like What do you mean, wait a minute? Wait a minute. Killer of Sheep is, it's potent, but it's also beautifully made. It's not just Burnett's camera work, that which has, it has a hard-bitten lyricism to the imagery he captures here, but it's also the music. He uses Dinah Washington, Paul Robeson, Earth, Wind & Fire, Rachmaninoff Gershwin. It's all put together in a way that draws out the inner life of Stan, who's this is really quiet guy who is valiantly fighting off defeat in, in a system that is rigged. So my number five killer of sheep, you know, I'll just pair with that. Certainly a more conventional Hollywood type film, but a very good one, a noir and one of the easy Rollins mysteries that Walter Mosley wrote and was adapted by director, Carl Franklin devil in a blue dress starring Denzel Washington and Don Cheadle in his breakout performance. Killer of sheep was released in 78, I think, but was primarily shot in 72 and 73 and then you look at devil in a blue dress that came out in 95 but is set back in 1948 and josh every one of the struggles you articulated is what easy rollins is dealing with and the community that he lives in is dealing with in that film so a great potential pairing there of killer of sheep and devil in a blue dress for my number five i'm going to rely on a couple listeners here as i said we announced this topic in our film spotting newsletter, which you can subscribe to if you haven't already, filmspotting.net slash newsletter. And the responses to the question, what movies taught you the most about racism, came in pretty quickly. And there was so much good stuff, Josh, we're going to get to a lot of it, but not nearly enough of it, probably, and not all of it as we get through this top five. But Hallie Mitchell is one of the listeners who wrote in, and she said the movie she really wants to flag up is Blind Spotting. The fact that I've walked the same Oakland streets doubtless added to the picture's impact, but regardless of its proximity, it is powerful and incisive. I don't feel it gets mentioned as much as some other films released around the same time, i.e., sorry to bother you. And I love that she mentioned Blind Spotting, and that didn't get enough attention on our show. Certainly recommend that for people to see if they haven't. But I picked Hallie's email, Josh, because she touched on something that I think is really important to this discussion. She writes, as a child, probably the first movie that I saw which touched on this subject was Alfonso Cuaron's A Little Princess, released when I was three. I watched it over and over on VHS, and I still watch it now, though on DVD. It is not about racism, and it doesn't delve into the issue of colonialism either, but the relationship between Sarah Crew and Becky and the way that the other children reacted to their friendship made an impact on me. It definitely would not be anywhere near my top five movies on this subject, though it would probably be on my top five children's films, but I wanted to mention it because this is something that children learn very early in life. We are so impressionable, and the movies that we watch as children stay with us and shape us in one way or another. So as good as the films on both of our lists are, and there are some truly great ones. If I'm being true to the spirit of the top five, and I'm talking about, Josh, the movies that had the biggest impact on me, not necessarily the five greatest movies on this subject, I do have to be willing to put on a movie that definitely is not going to earn me any points as a cinephile. And one I was reminded of 
by another listener, Laura Ellis in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. She wrote in mentioning two long forgotten films about racism, but not the black white racism we usually think about. One of the films Laura mentioned is a 1968 John Borman movie called Hell in the Pacific that I haven't seen. The other is, Laura says, a not very good movie called Enemy Mine from 1985 by Wolfgang Peterson. Love it stars Enemy Den- Mine. Yeah, it stars Dennis Quaid as a space fighter pilot crash landing on a planet with an enemy combatant played by Louis Gossett Jr. They, of course, have to work together to survive and learn to live on this foreign planet. And yeah, it's Wolfgang Peterson. This is a white filmmaker. I certainly wanted to amplify black voices as well on this list, Josh, and I'm going to get to my other four picks that will do that. But I think Halley's point is an essential one. The lessons we learn early in life do shape our perceptions of the world and how we relate to others, especially if you are, and we'll get probably to a little bit more on your background as we get through these lists. If you're growing up in a place like I did in small town Iowa, where you aren't encountering people who look different than you or have dramatically different backgrounds than you, then movies and other forms of pop culture are going to be your guides. And I was older than Hallie when she saw A Little Princess. I think I was maybe 12 or 13, and it was a few years after Enemy Mine came out. But I remember so vividly, Josh, and I have still only seen it the one time. I remember somehow on like a Sunday morning waking up at like 5.30 a.m. It never happened, but something just startled me awake, and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I had the remote control and I flipped on the TV in my bedroom and went to HBO or Cinemax. And this movie, Enemy Mine, is just beginning. And I'm watching it thinking, it's space? There are pilots battling in space? And there's Dennis Quaid, who was one of my favorite actors at the time. And I was in and I ended up staying up the rest of that morning and watching this entire film. And of course, what I ended up watching was a movie that until it does devolve into some action heroics near the end. It's the story of this deep friendship that develops between these two enemies. They don't look the same. They don't speak the same language. They don't eat the same foods. They don't have anywhere close to the same customs, but they are forced by the necessity of their isolation to depend on each other and to trust each other. And looking back on it, knowing that it was released in 1985, I'm sure that it was intended to be a Cold War allegory, that the the Drax, the species, the alien species that Louis Gossett Jr. represents, and then Dennis Quaid is the American, and Gossett Jr. is the Drac is the Russian, probably. And they've just always been at war. They don't even know why anymore at this point, but they hate each other. But I saw it removed from that context, as I said, a few years later, and I did see it as this more universal statement about the possibility of commonality and possibility for compassion. And most importantly, the need to start from that place, a place of commonality and compassion whenever you encounter someone who is different than you. Bulvo da Lubo. Translate. If one receives evil from another, let one not do evil in return rather let him extend love to the enemy that love might unite them I've heard all this before in the human Talman of course you have truth is truth but what you have not yet learned is the way we Drax express the truth. Now, if I watch this movie again in 2020, 
I would probably find it a little bit overwrought, Josh, maybe a little bit heavy handed and sappy. I look back at Roger Ebert's review, only gave it two and a half stars. He praised Quaid and Lewis Gossett Jr. said they were both very good, but saddled with a predictable and sentimental script. And he closed his review by saying, here's a movie that made no compromises in its art direction, its special effects and its performances and then compromised everything else in sight. So Ebert's not a fan of the story and the plot and some of what he felt were cliches or gimmicks that it relied on. And I can't tell you that Enemy Mine is a good movie or that it's a movie that's worth your time ahead of so many other movies that we're going to talk about and so many others that we're not going to get to. But I can tell you it was a formative, important movie for me. Yeah, a starting place. I, yep. I can totally see that. It was it hit the bullseye for me at what? I was maybe 11, 12. It's exactly the sort of thing I was looking for then. And I remember being surprised as well at, at sort of the allegorical things that were going on. And I do remember it as sort of a war allegory, but definitely um, the other things you're talking about are there too. As you said, I think I'll let it rest in my memory though. I, I don't know if I want to see how that holds up today either. Right. All right, number four. Um, so- you know, as we've seen more and more protests over police killings of unarmed African-Americans really in the last 10 years or so, I've had mostly a confused understanding of those instances in the protests when chaos and violence would would break out. I was, you know, I'd wonder who's who, uh, who's doing what, what were the flashpoints? And it always seemed to me that the news reports, which usually obsessed about the looting and the property damage, that that's usually what we got on our on our TVs. That just didn't seem helpful to me. Well, then in 2017, we got this documentary called Whose Streets? And that's where co-directors Saba Folian and Damon Davis, they collect scores of mobile phone videos taken in the aftermath of the killing of Michael Brown uh, by police officer Darren Wilson in 2014. Most of the footage that, that they use was taken during the ensuing days and nights of protests that took place in Ferguson, Missouri. Now, if you've seen Whose Streets in the last couple of years, you're not surprised much at all by the excessive level of force that is being used around the country on this week's protesters. At one point in the documentary, this is the defining footage that was captured for me. There are residents standing behind this chain link fence, and they're told by law enforcement proceeding down the street uh, via a loudspeaker to return to their homes. And one of one of the residents shouts back, this is my backyard, and they're fired upon with gas canisters. Um, elsewhere in the doc, an activist describes what's happening as, quote, an unseen war. And considering all the dogs, the military trucks, the high-grade weapons being used on neighborhood folks, you you understand that language. It's exactly what we're witnessing. And, and of course, we're seeing that warfare spreading across the country right now. It sort of feels like whose streets has been playing each night on our screens in so mm -hmm. many of our cities. And man, we've got we've got enough enraging footage of abuse of power at this point to fill a to fill a film festival, never mind one documentary. It's just been a torrent that while it's maddening, I guess the hope is that the cumulative weight of all of it will move things beyond um, even where they were when Whose Streets came out mm. in 2017. Yeah, it's odd because I don't have Whose Streets logged on Letterboxd, and yet I remember watching it. And one of the reasons I remember watching it is that you're so right. Everything that I've been seeing, mostly on social media, the clips I've been seeing on Twitter and Facebook, they take me right back to the experience of watching that film. I yeah. feel like I have seen it all before because of that film. So as we're talking about getting educated 
on the topic of racism, you can do it through watching terrible, horrific, deplorable behavior that gives you the indicator of how you don't want to act in the world and how you don't want to see other people being treated. Or you can see examples as we ultimately see in Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. in Enemy Mine, how two people can come together and treat each other with love and compassion. Sometimes, though, you can just get educated. Ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value. It's these folk shooting each other and selling that crack rock and stuff. Well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that in here. I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see. Black people selling the rock, pushing the rock, pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. Wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Now, if you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that But they want us to kill ourselves. Furious, Lawrence Fishburne in John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. And I did have to include that clip and that part about my home state of Iowa, because as we've kind of touched on, the reality is in Iowa in 1991, when this movie came out, I'm thinking about what my exposure to African-Americans would have been. And I texted one of my best friends just yesterday to make sure that I was remembering this right. I grew up in a small town, about 9,000 people. I remember the one black family in that town. Then for high school, I moved a few miles away, slightly bigger, 15,000. And I asked him, am I crazy? Or was there really not any African-American kids in our entire class? And he reminded me that for a while, I think before I moved there, there was one African-American student who was in the class for a short time, didn't graduate with our group. And then he reminded me of two brothers who were in his sister's class. But that's it. In the entire high school, over a thousand kids. So other than athletes on TV, the image of black people on TV that Furious is talking about there in that clip was probably what I primarily saw. A character like Ice Cube's Doughboy, that was someone I knew only from mass media or probably from rap songs. There was nothing I understood about the struggle of black life in America at that time. If I even have any sense of it now, I certainly didn't back in 1991. And it wasn't until I had a window into these characters based on Singleton's own life and relationships. And until I had someone with the wisdom and the experience of Furious to to be a teacher, to open my eyes to a much larger more heinous system of institutional oppression at play, just as he's doing for his son and his friend and then everyone else who gathered on the street corner there to hear him speak. Boys in the Hood is available on Amazon Prime, I think, if you have a subscription. And it's also out there on other VOD platforms. But absolutely an essential film for me and the first movie I thought of when we embarked on this topic. Yeah, huge movie for me, an honorable mention, uh, partly just because I was becoming such a huge film lover at that point, and I just loved Singleton's story of kind of coming up, you know, bringing something new to the Hollywood system. But what you're talking about, Adam, um, was also a factor for me, and 
we've talked about pop culture being a, a light for us, but in some ways it can also dim things or distort things. If, if the only images you're getting from, um, you know, certain musicians or certain films, um, are really stereotypical ones. Um, mm -hmm. and that can distort your understanding of the African-American experience. And here with boys in the hood, was something that countered not only those, but again, countered news reports about gang violence, which just yeah. focused on the danger and the fear. Mm -hmm. And instead you saw the families who lived in these neighborhoods who were struggling with this in so many ways. And yes. you realize, oh, this, this is, you know, not like some horrible place that I need to be afraid of. This is like, if my family happened to live where something like this was going on, what it might be like for us when you understand what these, uh, these kids and their parents are going through. That's so, it. so yeah, boys in the hood is, is, is it was huge for me as well. Yeah. You nailed it. Shattering stereotypes. That's really what that film did for me, for you. And so many people like us who, couldn't otherwise understand that experience at the time. All right. My number three pick is, uh, well, you know, I guess part of an education about racism, at least for me, has been not only stories of oppression and suffering, but also just learning about black culture. And a fascinating corner of African-American culture unfolds in Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991. This takes place in 1902. It's uh, set on an island off the coast of Georgia where an African-American community has existed for generations. And so their isolation has allowed for a thriving and unique culture, one that's that's really attuned to their African ancestors, one that's blessedly free of whiteness. Now, friend of the show, Aisha Harris, wrote a great essay for the New York Times at the end of 2019 about the new cultural canon. And as part of that, she discussed how Beyonce's short musical film, Lemonade, and that's an honorable mention for me for this list too, by the way, Lemonade. But she talks about how that drew on the Southern tableau aesthetic of Dash's film. Here's Aisha. Daughters of the Dust didn't need Lemonade to assert its place in the canon. The film was added in 2004 to the National Film Registry, a collection of films selected for preservation by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. But Beyonce's homage a quarter of a century later reinforced its staying power and demonstrated just how influential the movie has been. So that's Aisha Harris on Daughters of the Dust. Again, just a chance for me, Adam, to when you see something like that, that is free of, I, I don't want to say free of white suppression because this community is also haunted by the legacy of slavery. Um, they've just managed to, um, to, to be free from it, literally, to form their own community, even though they're still living under under that uh, trauma. Um, but it's a little different in that, again, whiteness is out of the picture. And then you realize uh, that racism suppresses such rich culture when it, when it tamps things down in such a way that they, that um, a community like this can't flower. When you see them flower, you realize what's being lost. Mm -hmm. um, so I heartily recommend um, Daughters of the Dust. And that is going to be part uh, of an upcoming marathon on overlooked auteurs that, that we're hoping to get to, right, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. Still in the plans for this year. And I was going to say a blind spot for me, but not going to be a blind spot for too much longer, as we are definitely going to watch Daughters of the Dust. You'll have to see it again, but not disappointed about that at all. And I'm eager to see it for the first time as part of that Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. We'll have more about that in the coming months. And you can always check out our past marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons. My number three is OJ Made in America. 
what I had as one of the best films of 2016. And when we talked about it during that best of the year roundtable, I touched then on one of the doc's revelations that is certainly relevant to the events that prompted this top five and why I think the documentary is so good and so essential to understanding race in America. And as much as we probably all have that Roger Ebert quote ringing around our heads these days and informing this list, even movies as empathy machines and them being maybe as close as we get to walking in someone else's shoes, sometimes it's simply a matter of getting information It is getting context and perspective that you otherwise don't have or couldn't have. So I actually want to read, indulge me for a second, I'm going to read a couple graphs from the LA Times, June 18, 1994. A massive manhunt involving scores of law enforcement officers ended in the cobblestone driveway of Simpson's Tudor-style mansion as Los Angeles Police Department officers in bulletproof vests converged on the white Ford Bronco in which Simpson and Cowlings had fled. As the truck sat parked, its hazard lights blinking silently in the balmy June night, Cowlings got out of the driver's seat and walked into the house. Then for nearly an hour, a distraught Simpson sat inside the truck, reportedly cradling a blue steel revolver and demanding to speak to his mother. Hundreds of supporters gathered in the upscale neighborhood, chanting free OJ and rocking police cars. Meanwhile, the LAPD special weapons and tactics team and negotiators surrounded the house, eventually coaxing Simpson out of the vehicle by cellular telephone. He put the gun down and emerged about 8.50 p.m. carrying a framed family photo. So what isn't said in that news report and what I was oblivious to watching on TV in Iowa at the time and Surely everyone watching in Iowa at the time was oblivious to it, was the sense that we weren't just watching a standoff between a man, in this case a celebrity, with a gun and lots of police with guns. And so, yeah, it could end potentially in violence, but that we were about to watch O.J. get killed by police live on TV. Now, that didn't end up happening, but that's what people in L.A., especially black people in L.A., thought they were watching play out. They were sure that they were going to watch police kill OJ on camera. And the answer to why is laid out in this Ezra Edelman documentary that aired over multiple nights on ESPN. It's eight hours long, I think, in total. He lays out the history over decades of mistreatment by the LAPD and the lack of trust that exists between them and the black community. I'll just give you a few examples that the movie touches on. Yulia Love, 39-year-old widow, mother of three, doesn't have the money to pay her $66 gas bill that the company came to collect. She's shot by two policemen, one black, 12 times. Operation Hammer, all these raids that happened in 1987, sending police officers into South Central LA to round up suspected gang members. The killing of Latasha Harlins. This happened right before Rodney King and helped fuel it as well. She's a 15-year-old girl shot in the back of the head by a grocer over a bottle of juice that she was trying to pay for. And... The woman was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, and the jury recommended the maximum sentence, 16 years. The white judge gave her probation and 400 hours of community service and a $500 fine. And as I said, that was then followed later the same month by by Rodney King. So to truly understand the trial and understand the verdict and its fallout, you have to understand the time and the place and the circumstances that that OJ came of age in and became a celebrity in and in which this trial occurred. And I remember being about 16 or 17, watching those Rodney King riots. And like you, when you were talking about your perspective before watching Whose Streets, not being able to process it, not being able to really process the violent response, the looting and the rioting and the destruction of black neighborhoods by black residents. 
And if I am able at all to process it now in retrospect and able to process what we've been watching unfold over the past week, it's because of this documentary, which obviously isn't just about OJ. And it's not just an L.A. story. It is sadly an American story. Yeah, it was the scope of that series that was so impressive and how well they handled every aspect of it. And when you think about it too, you know, if if that was proposed as a series, you immediately, my immediate fear would be that it's going to go for all the sensational aspects of the story. Right. Um, and instead while not, you know, avoiding or ignoring those elements, it it took a U-turn right into the, the deep issues underneath um, what we were seeing on our screens. And it was a really, really impressive piece of work. If you haven't seen OJ Made in America, I thought it was available on Hulu, but I searched today and I didn't see it there. It is available via Watch ESPN. If you have a cable account, I think you could purchase the episodes on YouTube, if not purchase the entire set. I did, Josh, want to highlight another documentary that came back to us a lot by listeners when thinking about this topic. Jim Bernstein said, I'm sure a lot of film spotting listeners will submit Ava DuVernay's 13th, but it's the one film that truly crystallized for me how racism has systematically and purposefully become a part of public policy in our country. Eric in Vancouver echoes that, says one thing that movies about racism fail to do is they never focus on racism on an institutionalized level. Instead, they tend to focus on racism on an individual level. Movies like Crash and Green Book show a very limited scope of the subject matter, pretty much saying, hey, why don't we just be nice to each other? It's insulting that they were praised, and it's especially insulting that they both won Best Picture, showing how out of touch the Academy is. That's why I think Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th was the most eye-opening because it actually dealt with racism truthfully. It showed the history of how racism is used as a political tool to shape America into what it is today. We'll hear from more listeners and get to movies from Gordon Parks Jr. and, of course, Spike Lee up ahead. Stay with us. as possible because you know what guys they want us to mess up they want us to be disorganized but not today not today i mean it looks like the right hand love is finished but hold on stop the presses the right hand's coming back yeah he got the left hand on the ropes now that's right yeah oh it's a devastating right and hate is hurt down oh oh left hand hate KO'd by love Bill Nunn's Radio Rahim and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. There will be more to come from Spike Lee and that film as we continue our top five. But Spike, the prolific filmmaker that he is, has a new film coming out soon that we're both really excited about. Actually opening on Netflix next weekend, June 12th. 
the Five Bloods. It's about four African-American Vietnam War vets who returned to Vietnam to search for the remains of their squad leader and for buried treasure. The movie stars Delroy Lindo, Giancarlo Esposito, Clark Peters, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., along with Chadwick Boseman and Jonathan Majors. Majors, of course, Adam gave one of both of our favorite performances last year in The Last mm-hmm. Black Man in San Francisco. Can't wait to see him in another film. I got to say, though, I might be most excited. I've kind of lost track of Delroy Lindo these last mm-hmm. couple of years, and so can't wait to see him on screen again. Also, maybe Giancarlo Esposito, who was so good in so many Spike Lee films and other films yep. maybe a decade or so ago. I feel like I haven't seen him much on the big screen. So, yeah, can't wait for The Five Bloods, which we will say is up in the air right now a little bit in terms of whether or not we'll talk about it next week or we will get to it the following week after everyone's had a chance to see it. There's a couple different show topics we're kicking around. The new film spotting poll question asks you about Spike Lee. We want to know. I can't believe we've never asked this before, and maybe we have. We just didn't do a thorough enough search of the archive, which would make even this question a deeply flawed yes. <laughs> trademark film spotting poll question, though I'm sure we're going to get feedback from lots of people telling us how flawed it is based on the fact that we only gave three choices and other has to do a lot of heavy lifting mm-hmm. when it comes to Spike Lee. We're asking you simply, what is Spike Lee's best film that isn't Do the Right Thing? Malcolm X from 1992, 25th Hour, which came out in 2002, and the recent Black Klansman. That was 2018. Yes, we are going to give you the choice of other and wow. I mean, I, heavy lifting indeed. I might have to go that route for reasons you'll see as we get into our list. Though if I had to choose among those three, Adam, I, I think for me might be might be Malcolm X. Yeah, I think even with other accounted for and every other film in his filmography, I'm pretty sure I haven't looked at it recently, but I'm pretty sure in my Spike Lee ranking that Malcolm X is number two. I think it is. So other than do the right thing, which is my number one and is in the film spotting pantheon, Malcolm X is where my vote is going to go, though. Big fan of Black Klansman, had it on my top 10 of the year, had it in my top 20 of the decade. And I love 25th Hour as well. So this is a tough one. Or maybe it's not. Maybe there are other people out there who just really adore one of those three films or one of the films that we didn't include. You can vote other and write it in. We love your comments. That poll is over at filmspotting.net. And it's maybe worth pointing out, as obvious as it is, that Spike Lee has been making movies for over 35 years, 30-something docs and narrative features, along with a lot of shorts. And Sam and I were talking about this over the weekend. How many other directors are not only as prolific as Spike Lee, but have career high points in all four decades? Yeah. He's been making movies. It's really astonishing. It is. And, and it puts him in the company of someone who we're also going to be talking about soon, right? Steven Spielberg. I think Spielberg's a little had a little bit longer of a career, but yeah, he and Spike continue to remain relevant uh, each decade with different films doing different mm-hmm. types of things. Yeah, we will get to that Spielberg show that we planned for this week originally, the 45th anniversary Sacred Cow Review of Jaws and our power ranking of the five decades of Spielberg's filmography. Right now, again, those two shows are just a little bit interchangeable. We may swap into Five Bloods, but I think our plan right now is to just push Spielberg back a week to next week, and then we'll get to Spike Lee on the 19th after everyone has hopefully seen Five Bloods over on Netflix. 
Every two weeks over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you'll find a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. This week, Josh, they kicked off a new movie pairing, and it's one I can't wait to listen to because I'm going to need their help. I'm really looking to Tasha and Scott and Keith and Genevieve to tell me what I missed here because they are pairing together a couple Shirley Jackson-related films. We have her new film, Shirley, from Madeline's Madeline director, Josephine Decker. That stars Elizabeth Moss as the writer Shirley Jackson. The Lottery, probably her most famous story. And then 1963's The Haunting, which is based on the Jackson novel, The Haunting of Hill House. That one directed by Robert Wise, stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, and Russ Tamblin, and was reviewed on Film Spotting. At least a decade ago, Josh, before your time, maybe a listener's choice pick as part of an after hours episode. But we did talk about that film. And as I recall, I did like it quite a bit, liked it more, unfortunately, than Shirley, which is a film that listeners may recall I had pegged. Back in January, I think during our preview, looking ahead to all the year's movies, I had it pegged as the movie I was pretty sure was going to be my number one movie of the year at the end of the year. And it's not going to make the cut, I'm guessing. No, it's not going to make the cut. And it was a mixed bag for me, just like Madeline's Madeline was. So there's a disconnect for me when it comes to Josephine Decker that I can't completely articulate as much as I love so much of the material and even so much of the style of Shirley, what I think Decker is playing with and some of the different motifs. But I'm going to look to the next picture show to tell me what I got wrong. Well, I'm definitely catching up with Shirley, and hopefully I can pile on and and explain that to you as well at some point, Adam. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. We do have a new goal that we have posted, Josh, over on the Film Spotting Patreon page. If we could get to 900 Film Spotting listeners, and we are just over 800 right now. We can get to over 900 listeners who subscribe to be family members on Patreon. We're going to do one of those things that seems to be all the rage these days. All the kids are doing it. We're going to do a virtual watch party with me, you, and our producer, Sam. Family members will get to pick ultimately the movie that we watch together. It should be fun, and all we got to do is get to 900. It will be fun, Adam. I've been able to do a couple of these. And yeah, it's kind of a weird experience because you're providing DVD commentary as it goes. And and we've got to nail down exactly what our format will be, but hopefully some sort of participation with the film spotting family members on Patreon as well. But yeah, it's just a really, it's, it's kind of amazing as people are finding, I think, um, this last two months, how community can be formed. Uh, even over these Zoom calls. And I know we're kind of, you know, all getting a little bit of Zoom exhaustion, but this is different because you're you're watching the film mostly just knowing that depending on how many people get, you know, dozens or maybe a hundred or so film spotting listeners are there with you at that time. Um, and hopefully we won't, we won't say too much dumb stuff to, to spoil the experience. <laughs> well, I have an approach to that. I have my strategy already planned out. I'm going to be the pretty face and you and Sam can share all the insights. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> deal. This is why it works having three people on the virtual watch. So we will have that. And there's a lot more you can get by supporting us on Patreon. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed. We have early downloads, a merch discount, and we do offer a monthly bonus episode. Recently talked about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Turns out Sam was wrong once in disliking that movie. He now adores it and thinks it's one of the best Wes Anderson films of all time. I obviously haven't evolved as a film viewer and critic because I saw the same movie I saw in 2004, but we had a really good in-depth discussion about it, or at least listeners seem to think it was, Josh. So we're still trying to figure out exactly what June's bonus show is going to be little bit different than what we've done before, probably, and that it won't be just a dissection of one movie, but those options will be coming soon because family members get to select that content. Indeed. So head over to patreon.com slash filmspotting if you want to vote on what that bonus show should be. I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things just standing there staring at me. I, I started to drive. I just plowed right through them. They didn't move. They didn't run or just stood there staring at me. Just wanted to crush them. We get back to our top five now. The top five movies that educated us about racism with that clip from George Romero's classic Night of the Living Dead. And it was already an honorable mention for me, Josh, for this list. And then we got this great email from Bruce Bachelor Glader in Milford, Ohio. He said, I'd like to say a few words about two films that provoked me to think about racism when I was still a teenager. And yes, I'm old. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead provided us with Dwayne Jones' Ben, one of the earliest depictions of a black hero. That was a bit of a shock to the system in 68. Ben also becomes an innocent victim in one of the most shocking endings of all time. Romero was making an incredibly incisive observation that in the midst of chaos when fighting a common foe the most disparate personalities can find a way to work together as long as the little girl doesn't start munching on your arm the other film i will briefly mention is Sidney lamette's 1964 film the pawnbroker a gut punch of a movie that evoked layered despair and the struggles of saul naserman a holocaust survivor whose flashbacks to a tragic past connect painfully with the suffering of the poor black and latino clientele now living in his neighborhood the movie offers no hope and no easy answers and a career best performance by Rod Steiger. The pawnbroker for me, Josh, is still a blind spot. No excuse for it. Really want and need to see that film. But as I said, Night of the Living Dead was really vivid in my mind while I was thinking about this list and this topic. We talked about it, I think, as a Sacred Cow review for Halloween, maybe three or four years ago. But Sounds we, right. We definitely did cover some of the same terrain that Bruce is there. All right, getting back to our lists at number two, I have Superfly, which is another film we have covered, Adam. It was part of our 2012 Black Exploitation Marathon that we did. Superfly came out in 1972, directed by Gordon Parks Jr., the son of Shaft director Gordon Parks. It stars Ron O'Neill as Priest, a New York City cocaine dealer who lives the high life, but he still walks around with heavy shoulders. I, I described it before. It's as if his outrageously patterned full-length jackets weigh a thousand pounds. He just carries them around with a weight on his shoulders. And that really surprised me that this movie had mournfulness in it, Adam. It wasn't guilt exactly that's bothering Priest, but this growing realization that no matter how much money he has doing this, he still can't buy his independence. I think Superfly is ultimately about 
how the criminal enterprise is really just another form of enslavement and that there's a connection the movie made for me from, you know, modern contemporary black experience to the legacy of slavery. One remarkable sequence demonstrates the systemic nature of this. It's it's the stunning still photo sequence shot by Parks Jr. that traces the cocaine, how the cocaine moves through society. So from how it's procured, the packaging of it and its sale, and then it moves from the ghetto all the way to these upper class white clients who really make up a significant part of Priest's customer base. So even though Priest is the Pusherman, that's the title of one of the signature songs on the Curtis Mayfield composed soundtrack. He's essentially still being pushed around. Well, I don't give a goddamn where your head is. You're going to work for me until I tell you to quit. You don't own me, pig, and no mother tells me when I can split. Who the f do you think you're talking to? So Superfly, best picture, Adam, for both of us when we yeah. did that marathon. Yeah, and getting at what you were speaking to, I remember the key line for me in that movie comes maybe about halfway through, and he's talking about why it is he's doing what he does, why he's trying to pull off these scores, and he says it's all about having a choice. It's just being able to decide what it is I want. Buy me some time just to be free. And hearing that and hearing it in that context and in a movie that is ostensibly this crime movie and this drug movie, but really is as thoughtful as it is, was really powerful. And I think it absolutely belongs on a list like this one. My number three was the OJ doc from 2016 that actually did win the best documentary feature Oscar at the Academy Awards in 2017. And I mentioned Ava DuVernay's 13th, which was also from that same year, came out in 2016, and I'm going with another one, Josh, that got an Oscar nomination with those two films, and it's I Am Not Your Negro from director Raoul Peck. It's part biography and that it's about maybe the most eloquent and incisive author and speaker on race the country's ever had, James Baldwin. And it explores his social activism and his commentary as a public intellectual in the 50s and 60s mainly, and imagines the book he never finished called Remember This House. That was going to be a personal account of the lives and deaths of three of his friends, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. So the movie does give you that historical perspective, the tragic legacies of those three men and their assassinations and their impact on the civil rights movement in addition to the biographical part. And then Peck blends those elements and the archival footage that he has and current footage of the time from Black Lives Matter's protests with Baldwin's own words to examine race in America. And of course, it's race in America past, present and, and presciently, sadly, now looking from 2016 to 2020, the future. And Baldwin has a key line, a line that he wrote that is said over the course of this movie. And for me, it's the gut punch of the movie. And if you had to pick two quick lines that sum up so devastatingly the state that we're in. It's this, the story of the Negro in America is the story of America. It is not a pretty story. It's, it's an ugly story, obviously, and it's still unfolding. And Baldwin famously said that he can't be a pessimist, that he's an optimist because he's alive. He's forced to be an optimist because he says that he believes we have to survive and we must. He emphasizes in a TV clip that you can find on YouTube. And I love that hope, Josh. And yet it's so hard to watch and hear clips like the one we played at the beginning of the show. And I want to play a part of here again from the Dick Cavett show. It's so hard to hear it and still be an optimist. 
if we were white, if we were Irish, if we were Jewish, if we were Poles, if we had, in fact, in your mind, a frame of reference, our heroes would be your heroes too. Nat Turner would be a hero for you instead of a threat. Malcolm X might still be alive. And, it, you know, everyone is very proud of brave little Israel, a state against which I have nothing. You know, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not an anti-Semite. But, you know, when the Israelis pick up guns or the Poles or the Irish or any white man in the world says, give me liberty or give me death, the entire white world applauds. When a black man says exactly the same thing, word for word, he is judged a criminal and treated like one, and everything possible is done to make an example of this bad man so there won't be any more like him. So when you hear that, what's changed? I mean, I think this was 50 years ago, Josh, 50 years ago, and we are in the same position. We got an email from a listener named Grace who went with I Am Not Your Negro as her most informative film on racism. She said the contrasting imagery from the 50s and 60s with modern day America truly highlights the horror of white families and their prosperity being built on the backs of our black brothers and sisters. I believe it's my duty and obligation as a white person to understand that and even feel the pain of it. It's my hope that doing so will bring us closer together and begin to unite us rather than divide us. Obviously, I, I hope we can do more than just understand and feel the pain of it. But that probably is the first part of the process. And there really isn't a better guide than James Baldwin and this movie. No, I mean, I mean, it's it's not James Baldwin's job to be our teacher, um, but it's it's our gift that he had. I, I don't even know if patience is the right word. There, there's a I remember writing about this. There's a tell in the documentary in the footage where you see him where he will eloquently, patiently lay things out. And then he sees that the person he's speaking to is just not getting it. And he'll, he'll, I think he like puts his fingertips to his forehead and yes. you can, he's just gathering himself um, because it couldn't be clearer what he is saying. And the willful ignorance is just pushing back on that. Um, so a great choice for this list. And I'm sure you considered as well, speaking of Baldwin, Adam, uh, if Beale street could talk Barry Jenkins adaptation of, of Baldwin's novel, um, which yep. is, is a direct address of, of police malpractice. Um, and a really wonderful film as well. Yeah, we will get to some listener feedback on that great film. My number one film of the year, it was released if Beale Street could talk. But I do want to plug that if you haven't seen I Am Not Your Negro, it's available as part of an Amazon Prime subscription. It is out there on other VOD platforms as well. And that tell, Josh, that you mentioned, it's visible in the clip I was referencing when I talked about him being an optimist. At some point, maybe about, I think, 20, 30 seconds in, he has that pause where the fingers go to the temple and he looks down and closes his eyes. Mm. And he isn't talking there directly to someone else. He's not in confrontation. He's monologuing. But it's as if it's as if he's still taking a pause to consider all of those voices he's ever mm -hmm. heard <laughs> that he's always been trying to refute over the course of his life on this matter and so many others. So we will link to that over on our top five page. If you go to filmspotting.net and click on lists, you'll see our picks for this top five and others. And we will link to these clips if you want to see them. 
So my number one, of course, is a slot that was going to go to Spike Lee. I mean, I've grown up, I've had the great fortune to grow up on the films of Spike Lee. And and it's also incredibly fitting that he's had a a bit of a resurgence or maybe kind of a a, a career ebbing up, as we were discussing um, these last few years with, for me, something like Chirac, but of course, Black Klansman and, and the upcoming Defy Bloods. You know, it's happening just when we need his rabble rousing brand of cinema once again. I think it was just a couple of shows ago now, our top five movie going experiences. I talked about how going to see Jungle Fever in high school was an education for me. And really every Spike film has been a sorely needed education. I think maybe that's why the ones that leave me the most discombobulated end up being my favorites when I look back on them. Um, I couldn't pick one for this list. So I've got a triple feature (laughs) for my top spot. I'm going to hit you with three here. Do the right thing. Of course. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. It's in the Pantheon. Not much needs to be said. Um, maybe though, as we watch it, if you watch it now and revisit it, um, amidst similar scenarios and uprisings to what we see there, remember how this movie ends or or note how this movie ends, because it's a very, surprising note of reconciliation between Mookie and Sal after Sal's pizzeria has burned down. We don't want to rush to that point, especially not right now. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I I don't mean that to be some sort of easy bomb, Um, but just hold on to it at least for now. And and there's a little bit of hope there in what is otherwise a righteously angry film that people forget about. Um, The other part of my triple feature is going to be Malcolm X. I knew very little about Malcolm X when that film came out. And it not only taught me his story, but really it had my sense of American history reoriented. And maybe just for a sense of that, um, it's best represented by one of Denzel Washington's most stirring speeches in the title role. Before there was any such thing as a Republican or a Democrat, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Mason or an Elk, we were black. Before there was any such thing as a Jew or a Christian, we were black people. In fact, before there was any such place as America, we were black. And after America has long passed from the scene, there will still be black people. I'm gonna tell you like it really is. The third film in my Spike Lee triple feature is a documentary, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts. This is Lee's four-hour doc. It was released within a year of Hurricane Katrina's landfall in 2005, and it's a surprisingly sober effort for Lee. He really just allows the evidence of governmental indifference and incompetence to quietly pile up until it becomes cumulatively infuriating. Uh, And of course, it also demonstrates how institutional racism results in minority communities suffering the worst from the hurricane. Shockingly, what's happening now with the pandemic, the same exact thing. Those are the folks who are suffering the most during the pandemic. So had to give Spike Lee three, just been hugely um, influential, educational for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Do the right thing, Malcolm X, when the levees broke. You're not going to get any argument from me. I was curious when I knew you were going to go with the triple feature, which three you were going to pick. I mean, I knew Do the Right Thing had a spot, but then there are so many other films that obviously deal with this topic in Spike's catalog, but that are also great and essential. And the most common title I saw come in from listeners, actually, isn't part of your triple bill. It was Bamboozled which I know you also love. I loved seeing that come up. Came up a lot from our listeners who thought it was the most essential film for them when it comes to this topic of race. I did just go with Do the Right Thing as my number one. And it is in the film spotting pantheon, so 
if we cared about the rules at this time and we don't, it would be ineligible. <laughs> We're going to make it eligible for this list. And Sam included Spike Lee's tweet in our newsletter that went out announcing this topic. Spike tweeted three brothers, Radio Rahim, Eric Garner, and George Floyd. And it was a mashup of those killings. And it's so chilling to see art and life collide so horribly. And you see the the repetition in the excessiveness of the use of force and the fear on the victims' faces and just the, the senselessness of it all. And if you forget everything else about what makes Do the Right Thing so great, the writing, the performances, Spike's style, and the use of color, and, and, and the fault lines in our racial divide that it exposes. What I keep thinking about in relation to our current situation, Josh, is the end. And it, it is the the moment of violence that precedes the reconciliation. I'm glad you pointed that out. You know what? I haven't seen Do the Right Thing in a long time. I had forgotten about that. As soon as you said it, I could picture it in my head. Mm-hmm. I remember it that vividly, but it took you reminding me of it because all I remember is that divisive act, throwing the garbage can through Sal's window. And I do want to talk about that for a second because I I remember watching during Ferguson, white people, white people with fundamentally good hearts. These are not people who are, are filled with hate or prejudice. See that footage and kind of shake their heads at the TV. They look at the footage of the unrest and the rage and the destruction, and they shake their heads and they say things like, what good is this doing? I just don't get it. Why? Or maybe just why? And that's it. And the question should be, How disenfranchised and powerless and angry must a black person feel to believe their only course of action is to destroy their own neighborhood, their own homes? What caused them to feel that way? But the why is just empty rhetoric, right, that allows the viewer to turn off the TV, not have to confront the true injustice of it, or confront maybe even their own complicity, however unintentional it may be. There's just such a disconnect with what they're seeing that they then choose to dismiss it rather than actually acknowledge the disconnect and because of it probe deeper and try to actually deal with the reality of a system that we are partly responsible for. And I think that Spike doesn't let you just shake your head and look away and say why. Like Mookie's act is the shock. It's the jolt out of complacency and the jolt out of denial. It it was for me anyway, watching it, not in 89. I don't think I saw it. I don't think it, it came to any theaters in my small town in Iowa in 1989. And I might not have been turned on to cinema enough anyway. It would have been after something like my number four pick, Boys in the Hood. And after really getting into film in the early 90s that I discovered that there's this genius named Spike Lee, and I saw this movie, and it hit me with that kind of power. Yeah, that sequence is, it really was a precursor to Who's Streets, as you describe it, Adam, in a lot of ways, because it put you on the ground from a different angle where everything, if that had not been your experience ever before, everything looked like it was a different universe. And that was the choice of having Mookie throw the can rather than anyone else in that mm-hmm. huge ensemble cast of characters. Um, many of them had the motivation for that. But in choosing Mookie, who was probably the character we most identified with as an audience, yeah. um, or were meant to at least, that's where things got complicated. And even though um, 
it made it complicated for me in a way that made me stop. Um, obviously, as I said, it took something like Who Streets <laughs> decades later to, to really start to cement it. But to, to say something else is going on here, there's more at work here than uh, just the maybe news or media images mm-hmm. we've been given. Yeah. I'll close with this thought from Matt White in Indy. I understand many responses will name Do the Right Thing is the movie which influenced their thinking about race the most, rightfully so. I'm going to do the same, but I want to explain why it was my second viewing of the film that mattered more. I first saw Do the Right Thing around the year 2002, shortly after I finished college. I found it a moving, fantastic film. It certainly helped develop my thinking about race, but not in a way that set itself apart from other films dealing with the same topic. However, when I watched it a second time in 2015, After the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, the film made a more significant impact. As I watched Radio Rahim die again at the hands of police, I realized countless black men have died the same way. And despite Spike Lee's film and rappers like N.W.A. trying to tell us, nobody paid attention until there was a cell phone video. I know I should have paid attention sooner. We all should have. Thank you, Matt, for that. So can we run through a couple of honorable mentions here, Adam? Let's do it. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, there were a lot. I wanted to get these, uh, these titles out here and you mentioned bamboozled. It was so encouraging to see that one come up because I consider that a little bit of a lost Spike Lee film. Maybe not, at least among our listeners. One of those who mentioned it was Rod Akizuki. He's in Vancouver, Canada. The last few minutes of Spike Lee's Bamboozled, where he shows a montage of racist images from pop culture, was horrifying and educational for me, leaving a long-lasting imprint in my memory. The rest of the movie has some funny and thought-provoking content, but that last montage says it all concisely and powerfully. So Bamboozled, for those who haven't seen it, it is essentially about uh, prejudice and discrimination in the media, came out in 2000, and in a lot of ways is an update of another film I considered for this list, Robert Townsend's 1987 comedy. Hollywood shuffle. So both kind of tackle that topic um, in funny, but also really bracing ways. Uh, Just a couple others I want to throw out there. Fruitvale Station, a dramatization of yet another police killing of an unarmed black man, in this case, Oscar Grant. Uh, Michael B. Jordan plays Grant in that film. It was Ryan Coogler's directorial debut. Barbershop is one that, you know, it's a comedy that really, for me, just offers more cultural education. You know, here, here's a different slice of life. I don't know. And I'm just going to sit in it for a couple of hours and in this case, enjoy it. I think that's part of this when we talk about um, education in this way. And then I mentioned uh, when the levees broke, the Spike Lee documentary. There's another documentary I really hope um, people will check out called Trouble the Water. It uh, offers, yes. offers a less journalistic and I think more of a firsthand experience of Katrina because it focuses almost mm-hmm. entirely on Kimberly Roberts. She's a, a resident of New Orleans. Uh, she lived in the doomed Lower Ninth Ward. So you you experience it right as she does, and it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, there are so many. I think we have a list probably between us of 20 or 30 additional films that we would love to mention, and a lot of them have come up. Certainly Malcolm X, part of your Troika there at number one was one of the first movies I thought about. And I will mention two other films by white filmmakers, and one of them is by a white filmmaker who is wrestling directly with his own family's legacy in the South and potential role in the killing of a black man. It's called Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun? That was a Golden Brick recommendation of mine a few years ago. And John Sayles' film Lone Star, I think, is another film that really gets at the notion of institutional racism over decades, the different ways it plays out in the African-American community, in the Hispanic community, in this case as well. And then if Beale Street could talk, Josh, you mentioned that 
great adaptation of the James Baldwin story by Barry Jenkins. And I do have one more bit of listener feedback here from our friend in South Bend, Indiana, Nathaniel Myers. He says, given its unfortunately perennial relevance at this point, I'd be surprised if you, Sam, and Josh hadn't encountered the short poem by Ross Gay on the death of Eric Garner called A Small Needful Fact. Here's a link to the poem with a reading of it by Gay. If you haven't read it, I can't recommend it strongly enough. My only regret, as I say, is that I've felt the need to revisit it as often as I have over the past few years. Small, needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means, perhaps, that with his very large hands, perhaps, in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which, most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. For me, the cinematic equivalent of this poem is if Beale Street could talk. There are certainly ways Jenkins' film is explicitly about systemic racism, about the social, political, and economic institutions that stand in the way of the film's central characters, Tish and Fani, but at the heart of the film is also a love story, kindly and generously and lovingly portrayed by Jenkins. And therein lies for me the radical work of this film, to show us how indelibly marked the lives of these two characters are by systemic racism, while at the same time showing us how much life there is for the two of them outside of that mark. The justice of their circumstance is all the more heartbreaking because we see how much is lost unfairly by those institutions that exist entirely beyond them, even as those same institutions inevitably determine the course of their lives. If, as a white male, economically comfortable person, I am often blind to the privilege that shapes my world, both Gay's poem and Jenkins' film not only show me what I don't know, but help me better see what I don't know I don't know. And in that way, they remind me to judge carefully. Eric Garner, it turns out, perhaps, most likely, in all likelihood, planted life-sustaining plants. And I think with those words, that's probably where we should leave it. We thank everyone who helped us out by submitting some great film suggestions and educating us on some other titles that we should seek out. And we do want to continue the dialogue. You can email us anytime feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. If you want to head over to filmspotting.net to the show archives, that's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. That's also the place you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you what is Spike Lee's best film aside from do the right thing. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Next week on the show, we are expecting to get to that Jaws Sacred Cow review. This month marks its 45th anniversary, and we're going to power rank the Spielberg decades. I can't wait until Josh puts the 2000s at his number one. Mm, spoiler, probably not going to happen. Thought okay. about it. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.